This week, I used Coolia to plan our next event in January. I worked with the founder, Andrew Nicholson, to connect Eventbrite to Coolia, push new attendee signups into Coolia, and automate pre- and post-event communications to our attendees. He even taught me how to use Zapier in the process, which I think is something that every modern marketer needs to know. What we achieved in 25 minutes would have taken a team of developers weeks to do a few years back. And speaking as someone who's relatively new to marketing automation, I was just blown away by how easy it all was. We also had a really nice chat about cognitive biases and heuristics. So if you want to plan your next event and have a nice chat about behavioral economics in the process, contact Andrew and the guys at coolia.ma. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Mike Payton. He is the co-author of Get a Grip, a fable of the best-selling book Traction, which teaches the entrepreneurial operating system, or EOS, used by just thousands of businesses worldwide to take the stress out of growing their businesses. I actually came to the Traction series relatively late. If you're a fan of the show, and I'm sure that you are, obviously, um, you know that towards the end of every interview, I always ask my guests the same questions. Tell us about your favorite books. And the number of people who said Traction was their favorite book, after a while, I was like, this is ridiculous. I have to get myself a copy of the book. I can't be the only person that doesn't know what everyone is talking about. Um, it's based on growing your business by focusing on just six key components instead of the 100 or more that most business owners are worrying about. If you haven't read it, just do yourself a favor and, and get yourself a copy. It's not an exaggeration to say that it will fundamentally change the way that you run your business. If you are remotely interested in using a process to remove the stress and uncertainty of growing your business predictably, then you will find this conversation to be just absolutely fascinating. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Mike Payton. Mike Payton has spent most of his life learning from entrepreneurs. Today, he spends all of his time giving back as an author, award-winning speaker, certified EOS implementer, and the visionary of EOS worldwide. Specifically, Payton helps entrepreneurs clarify, simplify, and achieve their vision by mastering the simple concepts and practical tools he'll be sharing with us today. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Mike Payton, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. It's terrific to be here. Great. I, I, I can't tell you as well how many previous guests have actually sort of mentioned your, your work. Um, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests the same questions. I ask them to tell, tell me about their favorite books. And the number of people who have mentioned uh, Traction, I, I can't tell you the number of people that have, that have done that. It's probably equal to the number of people that have mentioned Good to Great, Jim Collins' wow. book. So you're, so you're in very good, yeah, you're in very that, good company. That's a that's great company to be in. And uh, I saw Gino speak once on the same stage as Jim Collins, and he got up uh, after Jim had spoken, and he said, I don't, to the audience, I don't know if you know this, but between Jim Collins and I, we've sold over 10 million books. Wow. <laughs> And that's becoming less funny today because it's becoming more true. As, it's becoming as, more and more true. As EOS grows around the globe. Definitely. So I, and I appreciate being mentioned in that, uh, in that company. Uh, in that rarefied era. Definitely. Well, it's it's really deserved, definitely. You know, they're both fantastic books, Get a Grip and, and Traction, and the other three books in the Traction Library, which we'll speak about a little bit later. But so tell us about how the book came about. What's the origin story? Yeah, so my, my business partner and mentor, the creator of EOS, Gino Wickman, um, wrote Traction as a, 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 a toolbox, really, to help companies who are interested in getting more of what they wanted from their businesses to help them implement the tools of EOS. Hmm. And so when I became an EOS implementer, Traction had just been published. Uh, I fell in love with it the way many of my clients do. And as a result, I flew off to Detroit and drank some purple Kool-Aid in Gino's <laughs> office and became a convert hmm. 
that was about 12 years ago. Wow. 2007 to be exact. Right. And, um, and, uh, and a couple of years into my journey as an EOS implementer, I, uh, had done quite a bit of writing in my career. I was an English major in college, a, a public speaker my whole life. And so I had on my VTO in my three year picture, a desire to write an EOS book. And so I approached Gino with the idea. He said he had the same thing on his VTO writing the next book mm-hmm. and both of us had in our mind that the right next book would be a business fable Mm. that illustrated a real life company in the trenches implementing EOS. (laughs) And so that's how the idea of the book was born. And we collaborated to publish that uh, work and um, grateful for the opportunity to collaborate with him and proud of the result. Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested in, the decisions as to why you wrote a business fable as more of a, as opposed to more of a traditional business book, which is what, what traction is, but we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, I wanted to talk about sort of where traction sits amongst other business books of its type, because it reminds me a little bit about Michael Gerber's book, the E-Myth. Um, but it also reminds me a little bit about Vern Harnish's book scaling up as well. And in my mind, it sort of sits in between in the middle of them because it's slightly more uh, rigorous than the e-myth I would say, but slightly more accessible than uh, Van Harnish's books scaling up. Where, where, where do you see it fitting? Yeah. And I, um, you know, so I'm a huge fan of both Gerber and Vern Harnish and, um, and Rockefeller habits and scaling up. I voraciously devoured, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the audiences might be a little different for the two mm-hmm. uh, books uh, in that, you know, EOS was built for privately held companies between 10 and 250 people whose owners are growth oriented. And that growth can be internal or external, uh, open minded, uh, work their tails off, aware that they need to deliver value in the world before they get anything in return. Um, not everybody that we work with wants to conquer the world or be on the cover of Forbes or mm-hmm. Fortune or Inc. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just, you know, give us a, a plumbing contractor who started a business almost accidentally and woke up one day and has 55 paychecks he or she is signing and thinks, oh, my God, I'm running a business. I need some help here. <laughs> That's for whom EOS was created and for whom I think attraction and the rest of the books in the traction library uh, really resonate. And then, you know, clients use the tools to achieve whatever they want to achieve in their business, be that bringing a little stability to their businesses and their lives or conquering the world and becoming the next industry disruptor. Mm. I think it serves both groups. Well, it's just to whom does it appeal first? I think it's that, that, you know, neighborhood entrepreneur who, who just wants things to be a little bit better and to take the business to the next level. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about Get a Grip. It's one of the five books in the Traction Library. And mm-hmm. in my mind, you've written a business uh, page turner because it's got everything from suspense and intrigue and humor. And it was great work. I, you know, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed reading it. Why, why did you decide to write a business fable, almost like Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, as opposed yeah. to a more traditional sort of business book structure? Well, there's there's about five data points. And so I'll give it. So first of all, Gino and I both count Patrick Lencioni amongst our favorite uh, business thought right. leaders. Mm-hmm. And his fables are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, we wanted to complement attraction. And so traction was already sort of, as you say, more of a standard business book, a bit of a how-to manual. Mm-hmm. I think it's the most engaging and page turnery how-to manual I've ever read, but mm-hmm. it's still a how-to manual. Sure. So, you know, for a lot of people who learn more experientially by watching other people work than they do by reading uh, instructions and, and advice, Um, we wanted to appeal to that audience a little bit differently, maybe than traction did. And then the last thing is, um, watching the tools be used by fictional characters takes you to a greater depth of learning. So it's one thing to hear about how to create a VTO, 
a vision traction organizer. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to read a story about real people working through the process of creating one and the challenges and conflicts they have, and then how they transform it into something that they're able to use to articulate the vision and the plan for the organization to the company, mm-hmm. build a better culture. It just, for me, the way I learn, it's a deeper way of wrapping one's head around the concepts we try and teach as EOS implementers. So those are a couple of the data points. Definitely. And also the advantages from my perspective is that you, you get to see what people are actually thinking right. because it, usually, I mean, in, in, in business, in meetings, you don't really, you know, there are meetings, you know, there are things that you present, but you don't really understand how that is internalized and how that is being processed by the individual that is receiving it. But what you do with the business fable is you you're able to sort of see the inner workings how the individual processes that information and how they're internalizing it like um the part where the leadership team has to decide if one member of the team is right for the marketing seat or not and the team have to give constructive feedback and then explain uh, and then you explain sort of the emotions of the person receiving that feedback which is quite quite sensitive um but I thought that was a really interesting way of sort of uh, expressing, um, yeah, how those emotions are sort of communicated and received. Yeah. Well said. And, and, you know, that was a big part of the deal is sometimes when you read a book that lays out everything you're going to go do in a logical progression, what you invoke in the reader is a sense that the author doesn't really understand how difficult all this sure. is, how emotional it can be. And what we wanted to convey in writing Get a Grip was, we know the good, the bad, and the ugly of being a leadership team member or a business owner or, or a user of these tools. And by illustrating that that's the way it typically works, it's always dramatic. There's always emotion. Um, we hope to make people understand that we do understand how difficult yeah. it is. And when we say, you know, implementing EOS is simple, we don't mean it's easy because it's very difficult. Whatever. So that that was another little data point there. Good, good point. Well, let's get into some of the specifics of the book. Um, Eileen, who's the hero of our of our story, she's a successful entrepreneur who's struggling to get the most out of her business. Let's say uh, the leadership team is dysfunctional, retention is bad, the culture is toxic, and she's having a negative, and that's all having a negative impact on the profitability of her business. So she enlists the help of a consultant who I guess is a professional EOS implementer. Um, But the problem is that Eileen has introduced several of these consultants to the business over the years, and each of them have promised transformational change and have delivered very little. So to bring in another consultant and to sell that internally to the leadership team is actually really quite difficult. How can businesses overcome that if they have gone through a similar experience themselves? Yeah, um, so... It's not unusual. The rule when we wrote the book, uh, Nathan, is that if neither Gino nor I had seen it happen 10 times with real world clients, we wouldn't put it in the book. So what you're talking about is something that happens a lot. And we refer to that as a flavor of the month company where the the leadership team is a little weary from every new idea that we've tried to to, to transform everything. So The one thing I want to say about EOS and why it has a tendency to stick where a lot of other uh, solutions to common business problems don't is it is a holistic set of tools and concepts designed to cure the whole body of an entrepreneurial company. And what we see clients doing frequently is treating symptoms. So sales are off track. So we're going to do a sales blitz. Hmm. you know, we're not very good at hiring and retaining great people, so we're going to hire a recruiter. And they, they, they solve one-fifth of the one-sixth of the problem that hmm. they need to solve hmm. to solve a bigger issue. And so by looking at the entire organization as an organism and working to strengthen all six key components of the business, we try and treat all of the root causes of those issues at the same time. Sure. And that's why it works. So how to convince a leadership team that it'll work, all I would say is 
find a local EOS implementer to come do a 90 minute meeting with your team and whether you intend to hire that implementer to help you with EOS or do it on your own, I think it'll paint a vivid picture for your leadership team of what a company would look like at the end of an EOS journey. Mm-hmm. And then you can decide whether you want to embark on that journey alongside your team. Whatever you decide is fine. Hmm. Well, it's really interesting because, you know, there's Traction, the book itself, which sort of lays out the the plan or the process to implement the um, EOS and, and VTO for yourself. Um, and you also have sort of Get a Grip, and there are three other books in the Traction Library as well. Do we need a professional EOS implementer, or can people do this by themselves? The, the people can absolutely do it by themselves. There's actually three approaches we talk about at the tail end of all five books in the Traction Library, and it's self-implementation, which is where you read the books, you download the free tools, and you work with your leadership team. There's assisted or guided self-implementation where in addition to the books and the tools you download from uh, our website, there's an online resource center available via subscription called Basecamp Hmm. that you can find at eosworldwide.com. And when you're a Basecamp member, you're actually gaining access to the implementer guides and videos professionals like me use to help entrepreneurial leadership teams implement EOS. And Mm -hmm. so it takes the program to another level. And then the third option is professional EOS implementation, working with a member of our implementer community. And what I would say to everybody is, even if that isn't what you intend to do, I recommend to all my friends and colleagues who want to self-implement EOS, I'll give you 90 minutes of my time. Let me spend that with your EOS, with your uh, leadership team at the beginning of your EOS journey. And at least I'll give you, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle without the picture of the product on the, on the cover of the box. I I give you the cover of the box and then go build the jigsaw puzzle the way you want. Right. That's what a 90 minute meeting would do for, for your listeners that want to self-implement. And that's the only thing I heartily recommend. Beyond that, choose whichever method best suits you, you and your leadership team, in my humble opinion. Well, you might be inundated with offers because you're coming to London soon, aren't you? On the 2nd of April. Uh, uh, yeah, I am. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure sort of um, people might be hounding you for, for that 90 minute, that 90 minute session when you arrive. But uh, well, uh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We're uh, we're we're launching a European implementer community with mm-hmm. London as its home base in 2020. And to celebrate that and kind of officially launch that effort, we're doing a uh, uh, launch event the morning of April 2nd at the Dorchester. So your listeners should look for information about that event. And I'd love to meet as many of them as are able to make it. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes and, and highlight that um, in the email as well. So, um, yeah, we will we will do that. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the specifics of traction because there are there are six components to traction there's vision people data issues processes and traction let's start let's start with the vision component you say in the book that businesses sometimes have too much vision what do you mean by that Mm -hmm. so when you strengthen the vision component in your business what you're doing is getting everybody in the organization, 100% on the same page with where we're going and how we plan to get there. Mm -hmm. And the tool we use to do that is a two-page strategic planning document called the Vision Traction Organizer, and it includes eight questions. And what I'll do is I'll ask each of those eight questions of the leadership team at the beginning of the journey, and I won't move forward to question number two until they all agree to the answer to question number one. And what that underscores is that the issue we're solving isn't a lack of vision. There's never been an entrepreneurial company started or being run with no vision. It's that every member of a three to eight person leadership team has a slightly different vision of where we're going and how we plan to get there. And we've got to get all those differing opinions out on the table 
and settle on one vision and one plan before we can get the rest of the organization on board. That's how we do it. Quite, quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about values because core values are a core part of the EOS methodology and, and, and the approach. Um, you say organizations should use them as a true north to hire by them, to fire by them, to remunerate, uh, to recognize people and, and reward people. Um, but so often we see organizations that have the wrong approach to core values. You know, they have these cheesy aspirational slogans or words on their wall and uh, it's either on their wall or in their drawer somewhere where no one no one sees them. Um, and, you know, they're, they're really cheesy things like ambition and yeah. greatness and um, sore and all those sorts of trite sort of words. So I think there's a lot of confusion around how to create core values, what core values actually are. Um, your approach to creating core values is a really interesting one. You say find three of your best performing employees or employees that you want to clone, find the best three characteristics that make up those individuals, and then use those characteristics as your true north, as your um, as your values almost. I may have not have captured that perfectly, but can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um you know, there's just so much great work around this core value stuff, but you're right. The, the, the idea of core values has become a little trite or overused. And when you think that two, you know, fraudulent failed companies like WorldCom and Enron had integrity as a core value, you kind of get a <laughs> for why the idea has, has waned a little bit in sure. terms of popularity. And so our point is this, a core values are used to drive the kind of culture the entrepreneur wants in his or her business. Right. And the leadership team wants to uh, have. And if all they are are posters of people climbing mountains and mm -hmm. operating sailboats. Right, and eagles soaring. You're not living and breathing them. They, the, the, you're going to invoke cynicism faster than you invoke a positive culture. Sure. So we work really hard to discover the best attributes of the best people already in the organization, clearly define what it is about those people that makes you feel like they're the great people we want to replicate. And if we could clone them, we'd conquer the world. And then that helps us inform the core values that are most important and how to talk about them consistently so that everybody in the organization knows what our standards for maintaining a great culture are, because until that's crystal clear and non-negotiable, having a great culture is the holy grail. And we've got to make it real so you're living and breathing this mm -hmm. stuff. Okay? And that's when it starts to happen. You mentioned Patrick Lencioni recently, um, uh, a while ago. He outlines, he outlines three mistakes companies make when they're actually creating their core values. Uh, he says that they're aspirational, uh, they're permission to play core values, so they're almost table stakes, things like honesty and professionalism that you should have anyway, um, or they're accidental core values. So these are the values that sort of got you where you are today, but they aren't needed in order to take you forward, um, things like entrepreneurial spirit. How should businesses approach creating their core values? Yeah, so... Um we, the way we do it is we work with the leadership team early in the journey. We ask them to identify the three um, best people in their organization mm -hmm. and to, uh, jot down their characteristics and attributes that made them put those people on the list. And then we call through that list using a technique we call keep, kill, combine until the members of the leadership team agree these three to seven things really nail what our non-negotiable hiring standards are. And we test those against a couple of exercises until the team is absolutely certain these are the three to seven core values that define the culture we want. Mm -hmm. And then we help them implement a set of tools that allow them to consistently and comfortably communicate with everybody in the organization about whether or not they're exhibiting these core values often enough to 
fit the culture. And we ask people, as you say, to hire, fire, review, reward, and recognize with them. You know, the litmus test I apply with my clients is if you're sick hearing yourself talk about your core values all the time, you're almost doing it enough. Right. <laughs> uh, you got to live and breathe it. Yeah, really interesting. I think one of the lines from Traction was that, um, you know, you almost need to say things 10 or 15 times for people to hear them for the first time. I can't remember the exact number, but it, it's something, something to that effect. Um, because I guess there's so much, you know, we're inundated with so much noise and so many messages that we need that message to be repeated regularly before it sort of gets through. Um, so what do we do if someone, once we've come up with those core values and we've defined the culture that we want in our organizations, what if someone, even in the leadership team, doesn't live up to those core values? Then what? Yeah, so um, then it's a, a process of having regular communication with them, giving open and honest feedback, working your butt off to coach them up so mm -hmm. their behaviors around the workplace and their evident attitudes match your standards. Mm -hmm. And like with anything, when you can't coach them up, you got to coach them out. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we're very careful to point out is, you know, Every entrepreneurial organization has a unique culture, but it is not an assessment of a person's worth to say that you don't fit our unique culture. Hmm. We're simply saying that there's a group of humans somewhere else in the world where you're going to fit a little bit better than you fit here. And, and, and if you can't consistently and comfortably exhibit the things that we've deemed cultural standards in our organization, you're going to be happier somewhere else. You're going to do better work. You're going to align with people better. It's a win-win when people are freed up to find a culture of people with whom they fit like a glove. Sure. sure, sure. So it may be that they're not the best fit in your organization, but there may yeah. be somewhere else where they thrive. Well, and I'll give, I'll give a great example. So you're, there are some cultures within which highly competitive people rub everybody the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And there are other cultures where if you're not highly competitive, you're going to be bulldozed and put out to pasture. Sure. Very Does that make highly competitive a good culture and not competitive a bad culture? Absolutely not. It's mm -hmm. just two different styles. Context. Totally. You've, you've got a character in the book called Carol. Uh, she's, uh, she's part of the fictional leadership team within, within the book. She's a little bit prickly, let's say. <laughs> right? That's all I want to say. Uh, I, I'll let you describe Carol's uh, characteristics and explain why it was important to include her in the book. Yeah, so I'll start with a funny story in that of all the things my clients and other uh, friends of mine in the entrepreneurial mm -hmm. Uh, community have said to me mm -hmm. about the book. Mm -hmm. The number one thing is, was Carol a member of our leadership team? <laughs> so, because everybody has a Carol, right? right? It's, it's someone, it's someone who's reasonably good at his or her job, right? Um, and just behaves in a way that doesn't really fit the culture. A little bit of a victim mentality, um, you know, turf protector. Um, you know, assumes negative intent regularly, mm -hmm. uh, not a great team player. And so in, in the example in the book at Swan Services, Carol's natural way of being is just different than most of the other people in the organization. Sure. And over time, what tends to happen with people like that is the differences become more and more pronounced because people who are different tend to revert to their neutral corners, assuming that the other person is going to be preparing for a battle. So in Swan, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And all the EOS implementation uh, process did was give a framework for the leadership team to have open and honest conversations with Carol about what was happening and give her the opportunity to recognize it and correct it and when she should, we when she couldn't, then they had to call the question, and Carol exited on her own because sure. she she was never going to fit the culture. Sure, but she she improved for a little while, didn't she? she not you know, only, well, yeah, we're gonna. 
I'm going to give it but the good old college try and good for Carol, mm-hmm. right? I like these people. I want to be good at my job. Mm-hmm. I'm stay here. But when it became clear to her, yeah. she wasn't going to make it long term. She started turning her attention to finding an opportunity elsewhere where she maybe was a better fit. Sure. Sure. And, uh, and you know, I'll, I'll just be humble here and say, personally, I've been Carol in a okay. couple of organizations, right. right? I didn't fit the culture and, mm. And I behaved badly, and 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 I assumed it was everybody else's problem. And so, um, you know, the best days of my career, in hindsight, were the days where I recognized that, and and learned to improve myself in a way that made me far more likely in the future to find a way to fit the culture uh, without being untrue to myself. And mm-hmm. so I'm a person as a result of those experiences. So Carol isn't necessarily someone that's combative or negative or, or down. It's just someone that doesn't necessarily fit the current culture. Yeah, I think she was that way partly because she didn't fit the culture. Okay. And so you, you, when you're surrounded by a bunch of people who don't have the same sensibilities as you, sure. you get used to being combative and argumentative. Sure. She, Carol's just a human being, Nathan. And and that's the thing about entrepreneurial companies. They're full of human beings. And the minute there is a way to run a business with robots and you don't need human, mm-hmm. EOS may go out of business because, <laughs> uh, because EOS is a system for harmonizing human energy. And, uh, and harmonizing human energy is not easy whatsoever. Let's talk about rocks and the meeting poles. Um, so you say that a rock is a way of sort of breaking your world down into a 90-day chunk that everyone can focus on. Yeah. They consist of between five and seven things that must be done in the next 90 days. Everyone owns one of them. What are the importance of rocks? Yeah, so so the term I like to plant in my client's head when I'm teaching them the concept of rocks is a rock is just a priority. And so to the and in most entrepreneurial companies, one of the challenges is that everything becomes a priority pretty quickly as you grow and scale. And, um, you know, the, the most common phrase I hear from entrepreneurial leadership teams about how it feels is we're all really talented people. We all work really hard. We all care a lot. But every day it feels like we're trying to fit 20 pounds of manure into a 10 pound bag. And so what we've got to do is figure out what's the right 10 pounds of manure for this quarter, right? Mm. And that's what we do when we set rocks. So a a leadership team running on EOS sets three to seven company rocks and each walks away with three to seven individual rocks every quarter because less is more. Mm. Those rocks are clearly articulated. They have a single owner who accepts personal accountability for pushing it over the finish line. And during the quarter, we check in regularly to see how people are doing. They say on track or off track to let their teammates know how they're coming along with their project. And at the end of the quarter, they say done or not done. Mm -hmm. And the key driver of accountability in an entrepreneurial company is the admission in front of your leadership team that you made a commitment to the organization to finish something and you didn't. And if you have people on your team for whom that feels icky, which is the vast majority of people in an entrepreneurial company, because entrepreneurs tend to be really good at hiring folks who are by nature accountable, Mm -hmm. um, that drives personal accountability for staying focused on one's priorities week in and week out, quarter in and quarter out. That's what creates the 90-day world for an organization. And then you talk about a meeting pulse. So you recommend putting a, a weekly 90-minute meeting in the diary called the meeting pulse to make sure that everyone's on track. But we already have too many meetings in the diary. Why do we need another one? Yeah, and, so and why great, is this one different? Great question. So the EOS meeting pulse is actually a two-part meeting pulse where mm-hmm. the leadership team goes off-site, meets quarterly for a full day three times a year and a two-day annual planning session once a year. And that's the 90-day world part of the meeting pulse. Within the quarter, though, we ask our leaders to spend 90 minutes together doing an efficient, highly productive meeting that focuses the time and attention of the leadership team on the most important parts 
of a leadership team's job, which we believe are keeping your scorecard numbers on track, Mm -hmm. keeping your priorities on track, making sure your customers and employees are happy, Mm -hmm. driving a little personal accountability amongst the leadership team, and solving issues. The reason the feel in most organizations is that there are too many meetings and all of them are lousy Mm -hmm. is because much of the time spent in meetings in most organizations isn't focused on those things I just shared with you. Mm -hmm. The team isn't on the same page. It's not prioritizing the most important things every quarter. It's not working to hold one another accountable to keeping scorecards on track and rocks on track. It's not checking in on whether or not our customers are happy. Meetings are where you go to avoid solving anything or getting <laughs> done. Right. But when a, when a client or a prospective client has this conversation with me, I'll say, and I apologize in advance for the indelicate language here, <laughs> I'll say it's not that the idea of meetings stink, it's that your meetings stink. And so let's make your meetings better and you'll be a lot, you'll be able to have fewer of them that deliver more value. And we're going to solve that issue rather than exacerbating it. Okay. You said, you said stink. I thought you were going to say something far well, worse. I, I, I was, more, all right. Okay. I was holding on to my seat. I, I, I'm, a, I'm aware that I may come off as a vulgar American. <laughs> So I'm, I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> it, is a, it is a family show. It is a family <laughs> show. <laughs> Kids listen to this show. All right. Um, so you say that there are, there are only two reasons for missing a meeting pulse. A vacation and death. Your death. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, you can't miss one of these meetings. Yeah. So, so, so the... Understand the philosophy behind that statement, which is when the level ten, the weekly level 10 meeting mm-hmm. begins working really well, it becomes the most sacred and valuable time members of the leadership team have together week in and week out. And they don't want to miss them for any other reason mm-hmm. than vacation and death. The message there is please take vacation. If you're so vital to your team's health, that when you miss a week or two because of a vacation, something is wrong and we've got to fix that. And then, um, you know, don't miss a meeting for any other reason. Now, truth be told, uh, you know, our clients do everything they can to follow those rules and they do miss them for trade shows, or important business conferences, but we really want to minimize that. So the team has that great weekly pulse connects their circles properly, stays on the same page throughout the quarter. And then the other rule is when you do miss a meeting, you're not allowed to hold everybody else hostage to um, keeping you updated or allowing you to participate. Trust that the team is going to focus on the right stuff when you're not there, make the right decisions and, and work yourself hard to stay up to date. Don't make it everybody else's job. Huh, really interesting. So you say that we should go on vacation, like when we have a vacation in the diary. I would, I would urge people to urge people to take that. vacation and step away from the business. Really yeah. interesting. Because the trainer in the book asked the team at some point, I don't remember when he did this, but he asked the team, does everyone in the business have enough time to do their job well? And they all kind of jokingly reply, no. Um, but you say that's a really big issue. But but I thought that not having enough time in business is almost the nature of being in business to a certain extent, especially the especially the nature of being in the agency world. Sorry, you know, sorry to interrupt you. When you know things are changing all the time and client pressures, and you've been pulled in a million different directions, but you say no. Yeah. So um, that's exactly the point, Nathan. Is that and and this stems from a, a conversation I had with a best business mentor of mine when I was a young man. Um, who sat me down and said, Peyton, if you can't go to Hawaii for a month and not check in at the business um, and come back and things are as good or better as when you left, you have a job, not a business. Okay. The company's running you rather than the other way around. So what we're trying to instill in an entrepreneurial company running on EOS is a mechanism for excellent execution, regardless of whether or not one or more members of the leadership team is there to 
coach people, mentor people, answer their questions, or what most of us are guilty about doing way more than we should, is we determine independently that something is so important and so urgent that giving it to somebody else would be a terrible mistake. So we nudge them out of the way and do it ourselves. Hmm. And you cannot build a business that is scalable and consistent if that's the way everything goes. You will reach your capacity at some point. The, the great Peter Druck, Drucker quotation is, the bottleneck is always at the top of the bottle. Hmm. And so I'd urge your listeners who feel that way to get right to the root of why everything important seems to have to funnel through you. And how could I make sure I've got the right leadership team and the right support mechanisms and the right processes around me in order to ensure that far less frequently that happens. Now, reality in an entrepreneurial company, you're going to go through three or six months spurts from time to time as you grow where those kinds of sacrifices are necessary. But anybody required to do that for longer than three to six months at a time, mm -hmm. what we see is bad stuff happens in the business or bad stuff happens at home or both. And that's why the, the rates of divorce and alcoholism mm -hmm. and a depression are so high in the entrepreneurial community because people get stuck mm -hmm. and I could not be more passionate about freeing your listeners from the belief that that's just their lot in life when they've decided to become an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So important. No, you're right. You write in the book that leaders who work beyond their current capacity can only endure for about six months, as you said, before they either burn out, leave or consistently underperform. Well, I've been going for about 10 months and I haven't left yet. I haven't burnt out. So I'm probably consistently under underperforming. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you and I both know that there are rare animals on this planet. <laughs> I'm, not one, I'm not one of them. But what I tell you is we don't have to. Right. And if we devote some of that time and energy we're spending to being the guy keeping the plates spinning on the stage to hiring and equipping other plate spinners with the tools necessary to help us. Mm -hmm. I think we might be able to solve that problem. Quite, quite, quite fascinating. L last couple of questions, Mike, before we get into our favorite questions towards the back end of the interview. Uh, in preparation for this, I spoke to a, a client of mine in the, in the South of England who have implemented ERS in the last 18 months and they've just seen some phenomenal results in the growth uh, and the professionalization of their agency. It's just night and day. Um, he asks, what percentage of organizations that implement EOS implement it successfully? You know, what percentage manage to implement on their own? Um, do they manage to implement all of EOS successfully or on average, what, what percentage do they manage to implement? Yeah. So I, I can speak with experience for the clients that have hired me and worked with me. I've worked with 120 uh, companies, done over 1,200 full-day sessions over the course of the last uh, dozen years. And um, out of that 120, I want to say all but a handful of them have implemented the foundational tools and migrated the foundational tools into their organizations to the point where they feel they're 80% strong in the six key components of their business mm -hmm. and are running their business on EOS without the need of somebody like me to run their quarterlies and annuals mm -hmm. every year. And that takes on average about two years. Now there are tools in the toolbox, the EOS toolbox beyond the um, foundational tools of EOS that some of my clients elect not to implement or use, mm -hmm. I would call that the exception rather than the rule. Um, and so my answer is, if you don't feel like you're using the foundational tools throughout your organization and 80% strong in the six key components, we should have a conversation because I think I might be able to point you in the right direction mm -hmm. and get you quite quite fascinating we we also understand that 
businesses need a visionary. So the person that points to the top of the mountain and says, that's where we're going. But you also write that every organization needs an integrator, the person that actually makes it happen. Um, and we can think of many great companies that have had both an integrator and a, and a visionary, Apple, Microsoft, go down the list. However, I was at an event recently um, with an agency owner who who said that they are implementing EOS right now. They've, they've just read the book and they're implementing Traction. And they're two co-founders. And they were struggling to decide which one of them was the integrator and which one was the visionary. Because in some instances, one of them is a visionary. And then in, in other instances, the other one is, is, is the visionary and vice versa. So can they be the same person? Yeah. So, um, you know, first of all, for your listeners, the book that allows people to sort of explore this topic in more depth and mm -hmm. make decisions without me on the line is Rocket Fuel. Right. And um, and it is a deep and rich uh, concept. And so I don't want to make light of or minimize the thoroughness with which we could talk about this. But right. I would say very simply, five percent of the population who are owners or leaders of businesses could be great at both seats. 95% is probably more likely to be successful in one of those two other seats, either because their passions lie with visionary versus integrator or vice versa, or because their skills, experiences, and ability to sustain energy uh, lies with one or two of those things. And it's just critical when there are two business leaders who aren't sure that they do the good work to figure out which seat, if either, they're most logically the owner. Because the other thing I sometimes see is you got two business uh, owners who are thinking about that and they may be neither, right? So that's a positive. It's True. possible to be the 100% owner of a business and the seat you belong in is sales guy hmm. or sales person, right? Hmm. You should be in the job where you're going to add the most value to your organization, have the most fun, and make the most money, hmm. right? And sometimes owning or running the company or being the visionary or integrator is none of those three things. Right. That's okay. what I want for entrepreneurs. Hmm. Um, and then the other piece of advice I'd give this couple of business owners is ask your leadership team what they think, because most of the time I have that situation, mm -hmm. the leadership team has already formulated a very strong opinion mm -hmm. and they're afraid to say it because they're pretty sure it's going to piss somebody off. <laughs> and so they don't. And so I'd say ask for people who know you both well to give you their opinion and that may help. Quite, quite fascinating. Mike, I, I know I only have you for a few more minutes. There are many more questions that we haven't been able to, to get to, but let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. I got, I have to choose one. Uh, that's <laughs> fair. Um, right. I would say the most pronounced failures in my business career were moments where I felt the need to be right rather than prioritizing the need to be effective as a member of a team. Hmm. And I, I made that mistake many, many times. And often it got me exited from companies where I had I been able to behave in a different way, I would have been more uh, valuable and our team would have been better off. And you know, I've just learned that it doesn't matter if you're right, if you don't have anybody in the gunny sack with you. Mm -hmm. Business is a sack race and it can only move as fast and in the right direction if you're all on the same page. So I've learned to prioritize being on the same page over the constant need to be right. Mm -hmm. Tell us about some of your early mentors who influenced the way that you think about growing businesses, about entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I had a, an early mentor by the name of Tom Green, very early days of my career. And what he taught me is life is meant to be an adventure. And he, sa he said to me one day when I was complaining about the chaotic nature of our work and the fact that there was a lot going on. And he said, well, you got to decide whether you're a guy who wants to go to the amusement park and ride the roller coaster and, and have fun or you're a guy who wants to carefully manage his or her uh, inbox every day and feel really good about the fact there's nothing in that bottom basket before you go home. 
Mm-hmm. And I hated that last word picture so much. I chose the adventure and I couldn't be more happy that I did. Mm, great advice. Love that. You, we've mentioned many f- amazing books so far in the show, Traction, Get a Grip, uh, Patrick Lencioni's. Tell us about some of your other favorite books. Yeah, so other favorite books, anything written by Dan Sullivan of Strategic Coach fame. Right Fantastic. now, that I'm talking about and feeling the most is a book he's written recently called The Gap mm. and the Game mm. about the mindset of typical entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial leaders. And it, it really freed me from some bad mojo that I struggle with from time to time. Mm-hmm. That's right at the top of the list. A couple others I'll share with you. I love uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. Just on, just on that, Dan Sullivan, yeah. he writes an amazing amount of books. Doesn't he, like, isn't he writing a book a month or a book every few months or every something? Quarter. Like? One a quarter. One a quarter? Yeah. That yeah. is just phenomenal. How many books has he, has he actually written? Well, you'll have to ask Dan that question, but it's a lot. And they're all, you know, focused on an simple concept that helps the mind of an entrepreneur mature mm-hmm. and grow and expand. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's not climbing Mount Everest every time he writes a book, but the combination of all these books just really helps take me to the next level. And mm-hmm. I give him credit. Mm-hmm. No, he's, he's really an, an inspiring guy. I, I love his longevity project. He, he wants to live until 130, mm-hmm. sorry, 156. Yeah. Right, right. And, and he's eight, he's in his seventies now, is he? Uh, almost 80 and almost he's 80. Uh, on his web uh, yeah. so he intends to complete that objective fantastic i love how he thinks yeah he's uh, he's phenomenal um sorry what were some of the other other books you yeah, so radical candor by kim scott a, 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 a book about the damage caused by an unwillingness to give uh, effective feedback positive and constructive and then the other one at the top of my list right now is essentialism by Greg McEwen. He's coming on the show next week. Oh, lovely. He's uh, one of my idols, and I couldn't be more grateful for uh, the work he's done. He's fantastic. Really, really compliments the EOS mechanism quite mm-hmm. a bit. Less is more. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree. The power of focus, definitely. Um, what do you do to keep mentally and physically fit? I um, stay active. I've recently had uh, my left hip replaced and it made me less active than I like to be. And my mindset uh, suffered as a result. And so I'm back to regular uh, fitness regimen, which is critical to my well-being. And then I take clarity breaks. I set aside time every week, an hour uh, to do nothing but think uh, no distractions, no busy work. And if I don't do that, I'm not a clear and competent leader. Hmm. Uh, and so those are my two must-haves. Hmm. Quite quite fascinating. Amazon Prime or Netflix? Uh, if I had to choose, I'd say Netflix, but really both. Okay. What's, what's good that you've seen recently? Um, I'm watching the show Succession. Oh, great show. <laughs> really well played really good show yeah it's um just just shows you they're, they're not happy yeah. are they they're not happy yeah, a, again humans yeah. they're human <laughs> they are human really interesting in the last three to five years what behaviors habits or ideas have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes yeah, so I just say essentialism, learning to say no earlier and with more conviction, learning to help people who wish I say yes, find other people that can help them so that saying no becomes easier. Those mm-hmm. are the two I'd point to as the most important development techniques that I've gotten. And I owe Gino Wickman for that. He's a master at that. Mm-hmm. And I was terrible at that when I became an EOS implementer. So mm-hmm. he's really, really helped me. Fantastic. Last couple of questions. What advice would you give to a millennial or a young person who comes to you and says they want to start a business or uh, get started as an entrepreneur? What advice do you give them? Yeah, so so I'm going to be very specific here because Gino's most recent project is a book he's just published called The Entrepreneurial Leap. Okay. 
And it is a book to help people determine whether they're an entrepreneur in the making. And if they are, it illuminates a path for them to turn their belief and passion into a going entrepreneurial concern and live a great life as an entrepreneur. So I just urge them to pick up a copy of Entrepreneurial Leap and do the right discerning because some people think they're entrepreneurial and they're really not. And I think I'm going to save a lot of people a lot of heartache. Really interesting. Uh, with that approach. Do you, don't you think that you can become an entrepreneur by reading, learning, doing the things that entrepreneurs do? Can, can't everyone be an entrepreneur? I believe you can't because you have to have certain things hardwired into you in order for the learning and growing that you would do as an entrepreneur. Trust me, there's tons of learning and growing that needs to happen when you're an entrepreneur, whether you're hardwired properly or not. But step one is making sure you've got the right mindset and the right attributes to be successful as an entrepreneur. It is not for everybody. Hmm. Can you You'll see that in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see that in the book. Can you share a couple of the mindsets or attributes that would require you to be successful as an entrepreneur? So uh, an, an insatiable comfort with and love of risk and uncertainty would be <laughs> You Definitely. Say, you know, yeah. if you like things just so and predictable, that's probably yeah. not great. Good point. Um, and then another one I'd point to, and again, Gino is the expert here, but um, uh, the other one I'd point to is real accountability and responsibility, sort of a willingness to be alone in a forest, responsible for your own well-being mm. and the well-being of your employees and mm. your clients. And some people are just horrified by mm. that prospect. They want a machine around them or a safety net. And uh, that, that deep sense of personal responsibility mm. and independence is really critical. Who was the Jocko Willink wrote Extreme Ownership, which mm -hmm. is essentially that concept of just yeah. of owning your outcomes, every single having complete responsibility for everything that happens to you. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, and, uh, just as we're Jocko is actually, I believe, speaking at our EOS conference in, in May, April? Of uh, May of next year in the States, in Indianapolis. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, he's he's awesome. <laughs> I'd have to I have to make a trip over to the States now. Uh, looking forward to that. And, and my final question, Mike, what do you know about growing a business today that you wish you knew? when you start in your career? Uh, that is a great question. I would say if I had to pick one, it's how interdependent it is on the people around you. Mm -hmm. I come from a family of rugged individualists. Mm -hmm. uh, the word stubborn might not be uh, unfair. <laughs> right. And I think what I know now is how not vital I am in the grand scheme of things to the future of our business hmm. and how much time and energy I would have spent as a young man developing other great leaders around me would be much higher knowing what I know today. Hmm. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure, Nathan. It was an absolute blast. Thanks for having me. We have been speaking with Mike Payton. He is a speaker, author, and implementer of EOS. We're not going to ask you to subscribe or give a five-star rating or share this episode with a friend because our thinking is if the content is any good, you'll willingly do that anyway. We'll leave that decision up to you. Email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Masters.